Chesterton, Gilbert Keith Chesterton, said this once. If I were a landlord and I were interested in deciding who was going to rent my property, I would be far more concerned if there were a way to do it to find out what the people believed than I would be to know about their income. Think about that for a second. I wouldn't necessarily just want to know about their income and whether they could pay the rent. I would want to find out what they believe, what kind of people they are. So what's behind that conviction? Why would he say such a thing like that? That's, that's preposterous, isn't it? Well, not if you own rental properties. Just because somebody can pay the rent doesn't mean they're going to. Just because they can pay the rent doesn't mean they're not going to destroy your property. Just because they pay the rent doesn't mean they're not going to be horrible neighbors. He has this recognition that there are private beliefs that you hold down deep that eventually make their way out into the world. Jesus says it. What's in your heart is eventually going to come out of your lips. You've been eating crystal burgers at some point. When you sweat, somebody's going to know. The stuff inside of you is going to come out of you. And that's what we're talking about today as we finish this three-week series about the things that are most cherished by us, the anchoring aspirations we have as a congregation. We talked first about worship. We said if you don't worship Jesus, you're going to become a troll, which is what the Bible says. No, we're talking about this idea of inner health made audible. That we were made to get outside of ourselves, to not be self-conscious, to, to have the humility to praise the one we were created to adore. And so as a community, that's one of the things that we were formed to do, to come together to declare the praises of him who has plucked us out of the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. This is our calling as priests in the world to worship. That has to do with our vertical relationship with God. And then we talk about nurture. Nurture has to do with breathing a certain kind of air that lends itself to us becoming more like our Savior, which is not to say that Jesus has an aspiration for us to become 33-year-old Middle Eastern Palestinian men with sandals and a beard. That's supposed to be funny. It didn't work. What Jesus intends for us to become, when God wants us to become like Jesus, that's his, that's his mission for the church, that we become like Jesus. He wants us to become the kind of people who aren't so very aware of ourselves, who love to obey God, who find that the greatest pleasure on the earth. He's got quite a project to undertake. But that's how you know you've been acted on by God, is you actually start wanting to obey him. You actually start wanting to want what he wants. You find yourself wishing, oh man, I wish I could do what he's calling me to. And sometimes you actually do. Worship, nurture. Nurture has to do with our relationships inside the church. So our vertical, our inside, and today we're looking at our outside relationship to the world, what we're calling witness. Edmund, Ed Clowney calls it witness. The Bible calls it witness. So that's what we're talking about, our witness to the world. And if you'll think about it, this is baked into our weekly life together as a congregation. Somebody surely will know what we say while you're holding hands for too long and it's like this is uncomfortable and I'm sweating and I don't know what the person next to me thinks about my sweating palms. And we're pronouncing the benediction, or if better, if I'm saying please hold hands for the benediction, 
And then I decided to make a six-minute announcement. That's not weird. Usually it's, it's more abbreviated than that. And so I pronounce the benediction. And after the benediction, does anyone know what I say or Corby says? Any kid, anybody, anyone has been here for the one of the 52 weeks each year for the last 16 years I've been saying this. Go in peace. To love and to serve. The risen Lord. Jesus Christ. Thank you. Scott. Th- I mean, Scotty. The, that's Scott's son. Sorry, Isaac. That was, I'm sorry, I just called you your dad's name. Go in peace to love and to serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we say at the close of the service. You know why? Because we're recognizing that we've been called in here by God. We've, we've done one part of what we're called to do. We've been refueled. We've received from the Lord. We've been reconstituted as the people of God who are elected. But we weren't elected so that we could sit around and go, ha, 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 stinking heathen out there at the golf club this morning. <laughs> I hope they enjoy their brunch in hell. We haven't been elected for that. We've been elected for the sake of the world. God has chosen us. He does this thing. He does it throughout the Bible. He picks one for the sake of the many. He picks Abraham and says, you are going to be a blessing to the nations. I'm going to knock your socks off with generosity and largesse from God so that you can knock this nation's socks off with God's generosity. You are blessed so that you will be a blessing. He's always picked individuals. He's always picked Israel, you will be a light to the nations. You are going to bear witness to the primary reality of the world, that this is God's world, that he's the king of it, he means good for it. If you want to be a person of flourishing, you want to have a life that goes on forever, you want to have a reason to live, you want to be forgiven of all the stains that cling like mildew on the cedar shanks of your heart. He'll pressure wash you clean. And then he'll send you out to be a walking advertisement of that to the world in everything you do. We have been called to witness. And so at the end of our worship, we say, now, go in peace. Go in shalom. Go in the knowledge that you and God are not at war anymore. That you have received reconciliation from God. Go out and be ambassadors of reconciliation in the world. On baseball fields and on soccer fields, in boardrooms and delivery rooms. When you're teaching kids, when you're in court, when you're driving on the road, everywhere you go, everything is changed. Because you live unto the one who has died for you, that you might live for God. Go in peace to love and to serve the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And it's encouraging as we look at this passage today, John's version of the Great Commission, which you've heard sermons about two or three hundred million times in your life, I'm sure. Matthew has one in chapter 28. Luke has one in chapter 24. This is the most abbreviated one. It's Jesus on the first Easter, after he's resurrected from the dead, He comes into the room without CGI into a locked room. He appears through the wall. That's pretty cool. 
Spielberg has not figured that one out yet. He can make it look like that happened, but he can't make it happen. And what's amazing about this is this con- these conditions of our witness, the conditions in which our witness is to occur are profoundly encouraging because they, it happens in the midst of fear and antagonism. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom Aleichem, he said. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed. Okay, we're not dealing with a ghost, and we're dealing with our Lord. We saw him get punctured in the side. We, we saw nails rivet his hands to the wood. Crushing blows of, to bone and sinew and tendon and ligament against wood. And these scars are there to say, I'm the real one. And they were overjoyed. But before they were overjoyed, they were huddled in fear with the doors locked. I think it's incredibly encouraging to realize when God calls us to go be his witnesses out in the world. He does it knowing that the conditions are hostile to that calling. He comes to the middle of people who are just as we are now, they were then huddled in fear. When I preach a sermon about witness, I guarantee you this, it's far less well-received than if we're talking about worship. Worship, ah, you, gotta, you can get a kumbaya thing going, Sing my praise music. It's awesome. It's replenishing. It feels good. It's wonderful. I'm glad. Nurture. Take meals to to the grandmas of the congregation when they've had surgery. Look out for each other and care for each other's kids when somebody's when somebody's overwhelmed. We love each other really well. We love that. Nurture. Mm, got it. Witness. We start thinking, didn't what was that? What did that CC guy say? Something like, uh, "Always preach the gospel, but if necessary, use words." It's not ever necessary, is it? We can be Jesus's people without ever saying it. We're going to be a CC people. We're going to bear witness without actually saying things, like somebody on the witness stand who chooses not to answer any of the questions. I think that might get you a contempt of court. The witness part makes us a little afraid because, you know, people don't like to hear about Jesus. But here's what's encouraging about it. Before we get a chance to go out and witness, before we get a chance to bear witness to this reality, Jesus does some reassuring first. He tells these huddled in fear disciples who must be expecting, if they they weren't expecting Jesus, if you can imagine that for a minute, what would it be like if all of a sudden this man you watched die, three days later, just appears in your room? I think you would be freaked out. I think you would shriek in terror. You would not know what was happening. You would be utterly alarmed and astonished. And if you realized it was Jesus, the other thing you would think is, oh my This was the same one that we, when they struck him, we scattered. We bailed on him. We practiced discipleship malpractice. 
We left. We weren't disciples. We were AWOL when he needed us. Some of us declared our allegiance, our undying allegiance. No matter what happens, I'll walk with you till the end of the earth unless it gets really hard. And then I'll deny you three times. And Jesus' words to them are these. Peace be with you. And then he says it again. Peace be with you. The scriptures had anticipated in Ezekiel that there was coming a covenant of peace. A covenant of shalom. An arrangement of God where he himself was going to look after the lost sheep because his shepherds had done a lousy job of it. He himself was going to reorient the hearts of people so they would no longer be allergic to God and they would come back to him. That his spirit, his life would live in them and they would move eagerly to walk in his ways. And Jesus is here saying, when I should be clobbering you, instead I'm offering you an invitation to be in cahoots with me. There is no debt. There is no score. Forget it, says Pierce Pettis. That's what friends are for. See, Brown tells this story about being involved in teenage hijinks, the, the malfeasance that sometimes overcomes adolescence. And it's the kind of thing that David says, please do not remember the sins of my youth. And he talks about getting caught with his friends. And his friends saying, oh, man. When I get home, my dad is going to kill me. And Steve Brown said, I used to think, oh, no. I've done this terrible thing, and when I get home, my dad is going to love me. And that will be way worse. Because sometimes when you deserve to be clobbered, it feels good to get clobbered. Even though it feels bad, you're like, yeah, I deserve this. You clobber yourself all the time. And here's the thing, Jesus won't do it. You deserve to be clobbered. You failed me. You ran away from me. Here's my word to you. It's all forgiven. The slate has been shattered. We're reconciled. Receive a gift of my favor. Receive the delight of my smile. That's the word to the fearful That's the word to those who have failed. That's the word to those who think, there's no way I can follow Jesus well. Peace be with you. Then he sends you out. You're a carrier of peace. You're a carrier of the glad tidings that God isn't angry. He isn't going to kill you. Anybody who will come to him can know this cleansing of him saying, yeah, You've betrayed me in a thousand ways, and I won't hold against you any of them. This is how Paul envisioned his whole ministry, an ambassador and minister of reconciliation, urging people to be reconciled to God, that God was not holding people's sins against them. You know, in our time, people don't think they sin. You realize this. I mean, there are a few sins that you can't do, throwing away plastic and stuff like that. But... But by and large, when you redefine everything so that there is no more sin, there's no more offense against God, it's all a malleable, fixable, changeable thing, you, you, know, you, have, a, you have a hard time convincing people sometimes that they can be forgiven. They're for what, forgiven for what? But I think deep-seated in some of our ignorance and rebellion against God is this 
is this sense that whether we know we sinned or not or whether we're aware of it, this sense that if there is a God and if he's watching, yikes, I don't want to think about that. Our professor Steve Brown also used to say, Christians don't pray because they're afraid that God might not be there. They stake their life on God being there. We're afraid he might not be. But non-Christians don't pray because they're afraid he might be there. And if he's there, uh uh-oh. And we get to say, no, 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 not uh uh-oh. Peace be with you. All you have to do is lay down your arms, and the God who has made you for himself will welcome you and receive you and revive you and give you life everlasting and a new reason to get up in the morning. Those are the conditions of your witness, this fear and antagonism. People are going to be against you. I had the great pleasure this week in my weekly article to Chattanooga of getting the most delightful insult I've ever gotten. It was so clever. Here's a great line from it. I'm sure your PCA fellows, I don't, wow, the quotation works, I don't know, are, deli- are, let's see, are ecstatic to have such a childishly eloquent carnival barker for prayer as yourself. That's great. Carnival barker, a childishly eloquent carnival barker. I think this is like a sideways compliment and a destructive insult. And he closed with, and I regard your intelligence as a raindrop compared to the fullness of the oceans of the seven seas. So that's good. I'm a raindrop. And the 42 quotations he gave me from people who hate religious things that he got off some website are the seven seas full of water and I'm one raindrop. Okay, I didn't realize I had a fight with this guy. I thought of many good responses, but I will not share them because I think he just wants to fight. And it might get nasty. But see, we meet up with antagonism, and we live in a moment where people, they just haven't thought about it, but they believe ridiculous things. Leslie Newbigin said it's actually a sign. It's the first signs of death of a culture, the first signs of spiritual death when people talk about What's true for me? As if there's nothing that might be true for everyone. It's just people who think that, but they just never thought about it before. You can think you don't have cancer, but if you do, it doesn't matter if you think you do or not. It's going to have its way with you. There are realities that whether you're alert to them or not, that we're responsible to and that we're, that we're made to respond to. And we've been made to be witnesses to that, and sometimes we'll receive hostility in the face of it. But we believe that Christianity is a public truth. It's not private. It's personal. But it isn't ever private because we think that Jesus Christ has the last say in human affairs. We believe that his kingship, his saviorship, his redeemership means to affect everything. That's why Paul can now say to slaves, to masters, to husbands, to wives, to children, to people in every walk of life, no matter what you're doing. No matter whether you're playing Pokemon or having your devotions, do it all to the glory of God, he would say. Just don't fall off anything while you're playing Pokemon. 
the conditions of our weakness are there's going to be some fear and antagonism, but Jesus helps you meet that by sending you out with peace, assuring you of his peace. There is no war between you and him. He's not against you. And he also gives you his spirit. He breathes on them. Peace be with you. Receive the Holy Spirit, he says. C.S. Lewis picks this up so beautifully when Aslan says to Lucy, who has failed to follow him, when they finally meet up, she says, oh, Aslan, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. He says, child, you have listened to fears. Come, let me breathe on you. It's this recognition that God's people are going to be scaredy cats sometimes. I am the biggest one, literally the biggest one. And yet, the scriptures are filled with, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. That we have this resource. When I was calling out to the Lord, he made me bold and stout-hearted. Which means when I called, I was cowardly and flimsy-hearted. God means to resource you as you go out into the world as a witness for Christ. Because he knows we get scared. We worry about what's going to happen to us. He wants us to worry about how we respond to him and how we love others. So he gives us his spirit. Peggy Noonan said, he used to be on Reagan's cabinet, now as a writer for the, the Wall Street Journal. She said that presidents, a modern president who is a natural, don't worry, there aren't any on the horizon. A mo- Whoa, what? A modern president who is a natural will breathe in the presidency, will breathe it in, straighten out his shoulders, she said this before, or hers, and walk forward, and whatever reality he walks into, he is bringing the presidency with him. But when he breathes it in and brings it into the world, he is presenting the American presidency to the world, and that is a big thing. She has this recognition that people come into this office, and this office stands for way bigger than the personal individual that they are. They submit themselves to the office, and then they appropriate the office of themselves and realize they are its banner. They are its advertisement. They are its embodiment. And so they walk into it. They breathe it in and realize, when I present myself, I'm presenting the presidency of the United States is way bigger than one man or woman. And that's what we get to do as witnesses. We call out for the Spirit to embolden us. The Apostle Paul says, pray for me that when I open my mouth, words will be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Do you think you ask for people to pray for you to fearlessly make known something if you're not fearful that you're going to make it known badly or that you won't make it known because of fear? You ask for fearlessness because you are fearful. Because you know that there are moments when opportunities emerge and you are going to shrink back out of ashamedness. Happens to me more times than I wish. I'm embarrassed to say. It's this recognition that the Spirit will embolden you. That you don't have to protect yourself because you're protected. You don't have to think ahead of time what you're going to say because words will be given you trust another life. You're standing for Jesus Christ. When you walk out into the world, when you go to your job, you have a power source against fear and against all the antagonism. To be bold. And that's what Jesus gives his spirit. So you got these conditions of witness. Your fear and antagonism. You have this 
provision for your witness, which is you breathe in the Holy Spirit and you walk out representing Jesus Christ just as a presidency would be represented by a new president. And then you have this privilege of actually being Jesus' brand. Think about it for a second. Ryan Lochte lost his sponsorships because he's, you know, he was silly. He boasted and then he couldn't backtrack. He might have done the same thing. It's a scary thing to be utterly honest about something that you did that was, I'm a 32-year-old man who urinated in some bathrooms and got pulled over by a security guard. Well, that's not the kind of thing you want to advertise and you're an Olympian. Better to say I was held up and I was like, whatever, whatevs, whatevs. It could happen to any of us. You see, we lie when we're under duress sometimes. We forget who we're answerable to. We think that the other person holds our destiny in their hand. But we've been privileged to bear witness. Jesus says, I want you huddled in fear, behind locked doors, who are afraid of the Jews. I want you who ran away from me at the critical moment. I want you. You're the ones I select. You're the ones in whom is all my delight. I want you to be the communicators of my peace to the world. I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers. I'm not going to ask you to drop me off 200 yards from the school so that you can walk off and nobody will see that we're together. I'm going to be with you no matter where you go, and I don't care how you embarrass me. I want you to represent me. You are going to be my witnesses, and witnesses let people know something that they have come to see is true. This is what I've seen is true. This is what I see is true. This is what we're called to do. And if you think about that, your work is the first place that you're called. When he says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. That sounds very similar to the kind of stuff that's placarded on an NFL football game on John 3.16. Sandwich boarded on some crazy dude in the end zone. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. That whosoever should believe in him should have life and not perish. And we are sent out like Jesus was into the world to say God isn't mad at the world. He wants to rescue it. He's for it. He likes it. He made it. He opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. He's, he's the one that's making it sunshine right now, even for people who are actively hating him. He wants you to lay down your arms and come be reconciled. Well, your work is one of the ways that you show the goodness of God. Even if you're getting paid to do it, you can still work as unto the Lord. In fact, if you let the amount of pay you get. One time, Frank Brock, I went to a, I was on a basketball team at Covenant College. I wasn't going to Covenant College, but I joined an intramural team so I could be part of Menudo, which was a Spanish boy band. In the name of our, Ricky Martin was in it. Come on, this was back in the day. But we were a basketball team. We were awesome, too. That was back when I could dunk, back when it looked less like I'd eaten a basketball and I could actually throw one down. And I had signed up to audit a class, a leadership class for Mr. Brock, who was the president of the school kids here. Is this kids? No, they're not here again. And, oh, some of them, they are here. Some of them are here, grandkids, too. And he came to me one time, and he's like, uh, I see you're going to be auditing my class. Are you going to come to my class? And I thought, oh, 
I was just going to audit the class and not ever go so I could be in the registry so I could play on Menudo. So I came to his class, even though I was enrolled at, at another school. And one thing I remember him saying is, when you go to work, you don't know how much you're worth, young people. People are always thinking they need to start out, you know, starting out live lampoon this. You need to start out making $275,000 a year because you're artistic. <laughs> and you don't know, he said, you don't know what economically what you're worth. So you need to give yourself to your labors and let them decide that. If you're always worrying about that, you're never going to do anything. And I think even broad, more broadly, when you start to believe that when I go out to my job each day, whether I get paid or not, and a lot of you don't get paid because your moms are teachers. <laughs> but if you go out to your daily work and you realize Jesus Christ, as the Father has sent him, Jesus Christ is sending me to the hospital, is sending me to my school, is sending me to the athletic field, is sending me to the bank, is sending me to sell insurance, is sending me to the construction site, as the Father has sent Jesus, now Jesus is sending me to show what it's like when God is on the scene. I'm sent. All of a sudden, you have a way different motivation than merely how much money am I getting paid. Some of you have jobs that are, shall we say, stinky. You don't like them. They don't seem important. And it's hard to give yourself to them because it doesn't seem like you're impo they're important. You're eager to, to pour your gifts out onto the world, against the world, I mean, for the world. But if you start to say, Jesus has sent me where I am. He sent me to work at Starbucks as a barista who writes people's names on the cups wrong. I'm going to write them right. You have been sent as a witness. How, how would I do that? That gives you a matter for prayer. It gives you a matter to see I have been placed where I am to bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Jesus it also happens with our words. We're going to have to open our mouths sometimes. You don't have to be able to answer every question. You just have to have a relationship with Jesus to be able to talk about a relationship with Jesus. What have you discovered? What have you unearthed? What has come home to roost in your heart? You've got something to share. Your deeds as well a reflection of this witness of our Savior. Paul's always talking about adorning the gospel with our conduct. It impacts and infuses all the ordinary things of life with a new kind of meaning to realize I am carrying Jesus Christ and his peace and his glad tidings of reconciliation out into the world with me everywhere I go. You start looking for opportunities. How do I bear witness to Christ? And you even ask when I'm not aware of it. Jesus, witness to yourself through my actions, through my words, through my attitudes, and let me be ready if there's an opportunity to speak. I close with this story, a quick story from Wendell Berry. This story called The Hurt Man, which I love and I always talk about when, it thinks, when I think about the church and its work in the world. The story of the hurt man where the little boy sitting on a Kentucky porch looking down into town on a Saturday night where he's not allowed to go because that's where the men would gather to drink. Whiskey and chew tobacco and gamble and all sorts of other enticing things. And a ruckus broke out and a man started running down the street, blood 
pouring out his face, and his friends following him in a mob, an angry mob because there is no other kind, chasing him down. And the boy said, my mother, who always did what the world set before her to do, opened up the front door and shooed this man, this bleeding, drunken man, into our house with his friends and closed the door to give him safe haven. And as he was seated there, bleeding, humiliated, beat up, she started giving orders. You, go get the linens. You, go get the supplies and the ointment. You, go get some water for cleansing. And she kept feeling his pain as she was saying, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. And then she remarked in this profound remark. She said, it's the Lord's own mercy that we have so many hands for the man had many wounds. It's the Lord's own mercy that we have so many hands for the, Lord, for the man had many wounds. And it strikes me that part of being a witness to Jesus Christ is that the world has many wounds. And Jesus has said, now I want you to be the hands and the eyes and the ears and the heart who dress those wounds with the hope of reconciliation, with the forgiveness of sins, with the showing that you don't have to be captive to your fear nor to your own neuroses. You don't have to live an aimless, wandering, lost life. You can live a forever life with the God you were made to be with who starts off by saying to you who do not deserve it, peace be with you. We have many hands. The world has many wounds. Let us be a church that dresses those wounds with the many hands empowered by the kind hands of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.